0: host Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr Ghoul Dolan Dr. Dolan is a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University, where her lab studies the circuit and synaptic mechanisms of social cognition and health and disease. They study everything from critical periods of plasticity to other forms of synaptic plasticity and metaplasticity. They study behavior and evolution. A lot of their work is focused on rodents and how the rodent brain works and how it responds to things like psychedelics and other psychoactive drugs. They also study octopuses, and so she has a sort of comparative evolutionary approach that her lab often uses as a lens through which to understand the brain and behavior. And we talked mostly about her recent work, which was just published, looking at how different psychedelics, things like psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, MDMA, ibogaine, all of which she would consider psychedelics, how these affect the brains of rodents in particular ways. Uh, Specifically, they looked at critical period plasticity for social reward learning. And so all these drugs they found in her lab have the ability to reopen a critical period for social learning— in mice, and we talked about how those experiments worked and what they found in particular. We talked about what all of these drugs have in common and why they can have this common behavioral effect on metaplasticity, despite the fact that they all work through different mechanisms. And we got into some of the nitty-gritty there. We tried to contextualize that as best we could. We talked about other work in psychedelic science related to neuroplasticity and how Dr. Dolan thinks about that. We talked about the relevance of these results for questions around whether the subjective psychedelic effect that psychedelic drugs actually have is relevant for their therapeutic outcomes. We talked about some of the future work that her and others are planning to do. And so if you're interested in psychedelics, how they work, um, what drugs like ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, and ibogaine have in common in terms of what they're doing down at the molecular and cellular level, this will be a really interesting episode for you. We talked about a lot, not just in terms of what her particular experiments were and how they work, but how she thinks about what's going on in the field of psychedelic science more generally. So if you want to understand how this stuff works and get her viewpoint on that and how that relates to the the likelihood of certain drug development strategies working out, uh, if you want to understand more about the science itself and and where this might go or what it could mean for, for psychiatry, this is a highly recommended episode. As always, if you like the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget to check out and subscribe Subscribe to my Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com to get the latest on what's coming up for the podcast, as well as my writing and other content that I'm producing related to the topics that I discuss on the podcast. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Ghoul Dolan. What kind of science do you do and what do you study in your lab?
1: Yeah, so I'm a neuroscientist and I study mostly social behaviors, but also learning in memory, um, plasticity. And um, evolution, development, Um, these are the sort of main topics that my lab studies.
0: And um, we're going to talk a lot today about stuff related to neuroplasticity and how different psychoactive drugs affect things like neuroplasticity in the brain we've talked about this on the podcast with you before and and many, many other guests. So we'll assume some knowledge from the listeners here, but could you give people just a very brief overview of what neuroplasticity is, and then maybe go into a little bit more detail on two forms of plasticity, long-term potentiation and depression?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Different people use plasticity in different ways. So the term has gotten to be a little bit overused. And, um, you know, clinicians use it to describe basically anything that changes over time, <laughs> which, you know, I think is a little, you know, too broad. Um, you know, neuro synaptic neurophysiologists like myself, we have a very specific, um, understanding of what that means. And, and our definition is basically that, when you stimulate a set of pathways uh, between two neurons, um, that stimulating that pathway at a certain uh, level uh, before you induce plasticity induces, you know, some baseline activity. And then after you induce plasticity, the same st- stimulation induces, you know, either a bigger or a smaller response. And if it's a bigger response, we call it long-term potentiation. And if it's a smaller response, we call it long-term depression. And it's a, it's a very specific synaptic um, response. Um, But synaptic plasticity, you know, described in that way um, is not just limited to um, the electrical activity changes, but you know typically is followed by changes at the level of gene expression which then gets translated into changes in morphology and so you know the type of synaptic plasticity that we study and that we focus on is electrophysiological but morphological plasticity is thought to be the the normal sequela of that of that type of plasticity
0: i see so if we imagine <clears throat> two neurons connected to one another, talking to each other. One of them sends a signal. It induces the the neuron listening to that one to uh, send out its own signal, say. If you then do something, you bathe the neurons in a drug or something like that, something changes. And if the first neuron sends out the same signal it did before, and then the second neuron has a bigger response or sends out more responses or something like that, we call that potentiation. And if you do the same thing, but the second neuron sends out uh, a lesser response, we call that depression.
1: That's right. That's
0: right. Okay. And so plasticity, I mean, as you said, it's used a lot. A lot of people use it differently. Um, you you know, as a synaptic physiologist, you have a more uh, specific way that you use that term. The other thing I want to get your just general comments on are when we talk about neuroplasticity very often in the public, it's used, uh, it's used in a way that almost implies that plasticity is a good thing, or it's always a beneficial thing. Can you talk about that a little bit and whether or not that's true?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's not true. I mean, just like everything, um, you know, not all growth is good growth. So, you know, a cancer biologist will tell you that when you're developing and you're, Uh, Body is growing. Growth is normal. Um, But even then, it's under certain constraints imposed by developmental programs so that, you know, you're not growing hands out of your cheek. You know, there are rules and you're growing, but there are rules. Um, Uncontrolled growth. Um, is what you see when you see cancer. And similarly, plasticity, you know, there are rules for plasticity, associative learning rules that say, you know, you're not just learning that. um, Let's say, let's just give the example of, you know, you go to a restaurant, you have a wonderful experience. It's the best turkey sandwich you've ever had in your life. And so you say to yourself, the next time I'm hungry and I'm in this neighborhood, I'm going to go back and get that turkey sandwich, And so the the rule of get this turkey sandwich is conditional on your hunger level, on your proximity, and, you know, a lot of other factors, accessibility, et cetera. And so those associations that you form are governed by rules. Um, Whereas other types of learning, for example, in addiction, they break all kinds of rules, right? So when you get addicted to a drug like, let's say, cocaine or fentanyl, then you are essentially you like it. All the time, no matter what the circumstances, whether you're hungry or not or close or whether it's illegal, whether it's going to cause your nose to bleed. You don't care. You you like it. You like it. You like it. And so that's a, a type of learning that breaks all of those rules. And that type of learning is actually associated with too much plasticity or hyperplasticity. That's what we see in the at the neuronal level when animals are, become addicted to drugs.
0: So so highly addictive drugs you know maybe taking something like cocaine or nicotine as an example these the addiction itself involves hyperplasticity or n- new connections sprouting it, you know to what extent is that true and and where what are some of the key circuits in the brain where we see that happening
1: yeah so i mean that's pretty much a universal property of all drugs of abuse so um sometimes they induce you know, uh, LTP like changes. So increases in dendritic spine morphology, uh, dendritic spine formation. And sometimes, you know, they induce reductions, but, you know, cocaine, heroin, amphetamine, you know, all of uh, nicotine, alcohol, they, all of the drugs of abuse induce these types of plastic changes, and they do them in what's called the mesocortical limbic reward circuit, which involves the ventral tegmental area, which has all those dopamine neurons, which send projections to the nucleus accumbens, which has the receptors for those dopamine um, release releasing terminals. Um, the prefrontal cortex is also part of that circuit. And that sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll circuit is is thought to be what's the, the brain regions that are involved in normally encoding reward-based learning that's constrained by certain rules. Whereas when drugs of abuse like cocaine and amphetamine and heroin take over, they kind of usurp those functions and do them in a, in a, um, accelerated way.
0: I see. So, uh, not all plasticity is good plasticity. And in fact, all drugs of abuse share this property of, uh, causing plasticity in the so-called sex drugs and rock and roll circuit, which is basically, uh, a part of the VTA to the accumbens, and it's a dopamine circuit. So dopamine is very important. Um, there's some plasticity that happens here, hyperplasticity, and that's, that's, a critical part of what the addiction process is in the brain.
1: That's right. And it, it it and importantly it also involves the prefrontal cortex because there have been some people who have you know made a big deal about sort of what psychedelics might be doing and they focus on the prefrontal cortex not realizing that the prefrontal cortex is also part of this sex drugs and rock and roll circuit that drugs of abuse also uh, uh, impact.
0: I see. So maybe you know, roughly speaking, people can imagine uh, the nucleus accumbens, kind of, sort of, kind of in the middle-ish of the brain. You've got one circuit from the VTA pumping dopamine, and that's sort of coming up from behind it. And then the prefrontal cortex, you know, right behind your forehead, is sort of sending information in the other direction. And those two streams are colliding, and the way that they mix together is is very important for all this stuff.
1: Um, almost. That's all of that's right, but also the dopamine neurons send projections to the uh, the prefrontal cortex directly and there's reciprocal connections between all of these things that are much less studied. So we like to, you know, when we make textbooks, we draw arrows and we make it seem like it's all going in one direction. But these brain regions are really talking to each other in in a pretty substantial way. And actually, you know, one of the other things that, um, you know, although it's not what I'm Necessarily, most well known for one of the big discoveries that I made when I was a, a still a trainee and a postdoc um, is is that the the nucleus accumbens also receives a pretty important serotonergic input from another brain region called the dorsal raphe, and that that type of reward learning is is a little bit sort of it, it there's beginning to be more evidence that that type of rewarded learning is also involved in um, encoding the reward value of other rewards like social rewards um that you know are not as often implicated in um, drugs of abuse but may also play a role there
0: mm-hmm. so yeah the brain is super complicated there's there's lots of connections lots of molecules involved not all plasticity is good plasticity we just talked about that in the context of addictive drugs. With all of that in mind, now there's there's something kind of interesting about psychedelics because on the one hand, they're famous for not really being drugs of abuse. You, you don't really they don't really have addictive properties like cocaine or amphetamine or nicotine or other things. And on the other hand, a lot of people have been talking about the ability uh and the relationship of psychedelics to plasticity. So they seem to be tied to plasticity in some way, and yet they're not drugs of abuse, so presumably the plasticity that they're triggering is not the same as something like cocaine. Up until very recently, can you give us sort of a, a state state of the art on what we know about, say, classic serotonergic psychedelics and the extent to which they are actually inducing plasticity per se? All
1: right. So in that question, I have to unpack at least three things. So uh, let me just take them in backwards order. So first of all, I do not like the terminology, classical psychedelic, because um, that is, I think, misleading. It suggests that the serotonergic psycho, uh, the psych- so called serotonergic psychedelics, the psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, you know, mescaline, DMT that target the serotonin two A receptor are somehow uniquely psychedelic, or the special category of psychedelic, and everything else is, um, you know, kind of got thrown in there after the fact, and that that's just not the case um, historically. You know, um, the people who first started um, this. You know, working in this field and defining, you know, serotonin receptors, uh, Saul Snyder, who discovered the serotonin 2A receptor included in the category of psychedelics, things like MDMA and ibogaine and ketamine, which do not bind the serotonin 2A receptor. Um, this push to kind of narrow the definition around the 2a receptor has really been um the focus of a lot of chemists who want to say oh, okay well we can understand that the some of the psychedelics bind this receptor have similar properties like s- hallucinations and so that's that's what we're going to focus on and everything else is just a you know exception to our serotonin rule and i think that that's putting the cart before the horse and you know I, i'm happy to talk about that as well but we we do have evidence that um, Um, the serotonin 2A receptor isn't especially special. You know, it's one of many mechanisms that can trigger the psychedelic experience and that, um, and that it's, you know, over uh, putting, putting the cart before the the horse in order uh, the horse before the cart, whatever the saying is um, to to narrowly constrain the definition around the 2A receptor. Um, So, I don't use classical psychedelic. Um, I just call them psychedelics and I, and I define them as, you know, um, hallucinogenic psychedelic and pathogenic psychedelic, onirogenic psychedelic, dissociative psychedelic, and specifically talk about the receptors for each drug.
0: So um, um, we're definitely going to dig into this more, but based on what you just said, how would you differentiate the word psychedelic in the way that you're using it from psychoactive?
1: Yeah so I, psychoactive literally means that it has an action on the brain um and uh psychotropic means something roughly similar that you know it, it has a an activity that produces a noticeable change in you know state a, a brain state um that you can feel but there are plenty of drugs that are psychoactive and psychotropic like they they target the brain um that that don't produce that sort of altered state of consciousness, right? So like Benadryl is psychoactive because it, you know, causes you to feel drowsy um, by targeting the brain, Um, but it's not psychedelic because it doesn't produce that altered state of consciousness that's shared by all psychedelics. So what is that altered state of consciousness? Well, it's a little bit tricky to describe because um, you know, it's, you know depending on how you define consciousness right but i think what we can kind of understand is is that um they seem to be drugs that make ha- share in common this feeling that the world is a different place when you're on it um that your your sense of smell your sense of space your sense of, sense of time um your you know typically sensory motor systems are all they just feel shifted in a way that you know, is unusual and a little bit um, reminding you that your normal waking life is just, I mean, some people have the feeling that, you know, your normal waking life is an illusion. And this new state that you're in when you're on these drugs is the really real. And that's kind of the and, and you have the epiphanies that you have in this altered state of consciousness are more real than you usually have access to. And that property is called the noetic property. Um, some people describe a mystical sense of feeling like they are in touch with, you know, spiritual forces and um, God. Some people really f- are, are focused on um, that altered state that that makes them feel um. Like they're a child again, like they're, they're they're um experiencing the world through fresh eyes and in a playful state that they haven't experienced since they were a child. Um so I know that's a sort of long-winded description, but if you haven't um done any psychedelics, it's um saying an altered state of consciousness doesn't really like explain it very well. Um, so I think we need to figure out a way to more succinctly describe it, um, but that gives a sense of how different the world seems on psychedelics.
0: And so, you know, using terminology this way and thinking about things this way, um, especially when we're talking about something um, so subjective here, um, the idea is, you know, if you've got something like LSD or psilocybin, tryptamines, which are historically referred to as uh, serotonergic or classic psychedelics, you've got dissociatives like ketamine, you've got them pathogens like MDMA. Even though the experience triggered by each of these are very different, the idea is that there's some common core here on the subjective experiential side. And even if it's very difficult to describe To describe exactly what that is in words, this would imply that there's also something biologically overlapping where all of these things converge. And we're going to come to that. I'll ask people just to keep that in the back of their mind for now, um, because that was part of your recent study. Um, But I want to give people a little bit more background on sort of plasticity and and some of the neurobiology stuff here. So we talked about long term depression and potentiation, and we talked about synaptic synaptic plasticity from the perspective of. physiologist like you there's also this concept of metaplasticity and so what is that
1: yeah so i mean this is this is an idea that's been around in neuroscience for roughly 25 30 years um and the idea is is that the rules for plasticity as i mentioned you know these are these are normally functioning physiological properties when they follow their rules. And those rules change as the animal or the brain matures, right? And so as a child or as a young developing brain, plasticity is easier to induce. And that's because, you know, there are these constraints on plasticity that as the brain matures, get put in place. So there are molecular constraints like the uh subunit composition of the receptors changes as the brain matures. There are circuit level constraints, for example, you know, um, inhibition, inhibitory neurons um get more numerous and have more synaptic connections, and they really sort of dampen down the excitability of the entire circuit. And then there are sort of interest um, neuronal space, extracellular matrix type of uh, mechanisms that also kind of lock in the plasticity and, and sort of lock everything into place. I like to think of it as sort of the grout between the tiles. And as the brain matures, that really uh, increases. And so that change in the ability to induce plasticity between a juvenile brain or a young developing brain and an adult mature brain that has stable, you know, habits and memories and learned things about the world, that change is called metaplasticity it's sometimes also called you know the plasticity of plasticity that ability to change over time and so back to your other question about you know there's been this idea that you know psychedelics are inducing plasticity i have to warn people that you know a couple of those well, a handful of those papers that have really made that claim that, you know, psychedelics are just psychoplastogens. um, Those ideas came from uh, experiments done in tissue culture. And so you have to know that I personally have not been able to reproduce most of those uh, findings the way that they've been described um, in those papers. And I think it's because these results are a technical artifact of using a culture system to define plasticity. So what do I mean by a culture system? These are basically baby neurons um, that are put in a dish and artificially kept alive. In that dish, they are, they don't have the molecular signature of an adult neuron. They don't have that circuit level constraints on plasticity by inhibition. And they don't have this, you know, sort of interstitial space kind of constraints imposed by extracellular matrix. So it's a, it's a very, very artificial system that, you know, very closely approximates, uh, you know, newborn brain, uh, neurons in a newborn brain, but without any of the circuit constraints. And because of that, basically, it's very, very easy to induce plasticity in a culture dish. In fact, some you know, prominent neuroscientists have said, you can spit on a culture dish and induce plasticity, right? It's just very easy to do. And so these early results that psychedelics were, you know, they were putting on bath applying psychedelics and getting um, these big, big, like, morphological changes, you know, 40% of the synapses are growing, there's, you know, sprouting of not just the the synapses themselves, but the dendritic arbors, you know, when I first saw those papers, I was just like, oh, no, you know, these drugs are going to be massively addictive, because they're doing these massive hyperplasticity like changes. But then I dug into the papers and realized that they were all done in culture. I mean, some of them not even in neurons, some of them in um, human embryonic kidney cells, which have been immortalized. So they've been some of these constraints on plasticity that I'm talking about have been been broken down even more, right? So they're really, really artificial systems. So that being said, what my lab has done is we have seen that there is a role for plasticity and specifically metaplasticity in uh, what psychedelics are doing. So what we found is, is that if we bath apply psychedelics, or sorry, we inject animals with psychedelics, um, and then we wait for two days, um, and so we're doing this in an adult animal where the whole brain circuits, all of those mechanisms, yeah.
0: Hold sorry, on. I, I wanna, on, I just want to, I just want to make thing. sure uh, <laughs> we we got some of this background. Um okay. so. You were basically describing the difference between in vitro and in vivo experiments so you can do experiments in a live animal that's fully intact and awake and doing stuff or anesthetized and doing and not doing stuff um or you can you know in some cases grow baby neurons basically in a petri dish and these are different types of neurons in very different types of contexts so if you have neurons growing in a dish they don't have all the same constraints that neurons in a real live animal have it's a completely different context. And so what you're saying is basically when you're doing experiments in vitro, where you've got neurons growing in a dish, it's much, much easier to get the neurons to do certain things and behave certain ways and, and induce plasticity. So even though there were experiments where people bathed, uh, baby neurons growing in a dish in psychedelics and saw really interesting, uh, really striking plasticity results and new connections, sprouting and things like this. What you're saying is, yes, they did observe those things, but in that context, in a Petri dish like that, you could put on any number of things and potentially even just kind of poke the dish or do anything. And you're going to see some kind of change akin to that.
1: Yes, that's right. right.
0: And and so is it, is it, is it common that you sort of see big differences between what happens in vitro and in vivo, or is this a special case?
1: No, no, that's that's very common. In fact, there have been whole uh, decades were lost um, in drug development programs at uh, big pharmaceutical companies that were sort of built on this. I mean, this is something that neuroscientists have been failing at for the last 30 years. And just when we thought we'd learned our lesson, a bunch of chemists who are excited about psychedelics decided to go back and redo the same mistake that we made 30 years ago. Right. And so basically it's very common. It has been common to try and, you know, make a simplified prep, use, you know, these dishes, these culture dishes, right. Because, you know, when you do these kinds of, Reduce preparations, you can test hundreds of drugs. It's exactly the kind of thing that a big pharmaceutical company loves, you know, where they can literally make a pipeline of testing Mm -hmm. thousands of drugs on a simplified prep. um, And, you know, it just fails over and over and over again. And
0: presumably the reason this is done has a lot to do with the fact that much easier to do in vitro experiments, much easier to screen through lots and lots and lots of drugs and look for something, uh, a good lead, um, rather than doing sort of the more time consuming and expensive in vivo experiments um but uh but but you need to because we've we've seen this happen before is what you're saying
1: right and also i think it's not just that you know you could say well you know if plasticity is the thing then we can search for the lead and then we can go back and refine it once we've got our you know 10 molecules unfortunately because the the culture dish that they're doing it in doesn't have the elements that you need, it turns out, to understand what psychedelics are doing, what instead is going to happen is is that you're going to engineer compounds to have a certain property that you can see in a dish, which in this case is plasticity which is not just orthogonal to the psychedelic property or to the therapeutic property, but is in fact something bad, right? Like you don't want to take a drug like Ibogaine, which is right now, you know, probably our best hope for treating heroin addiction and engineer it in a dish um, or engineer it you know in, in a chemistry lab and then screen for those compounds in a dish looking for plasticity because then you're just going to in- take a drug that's useful for addiction and turn it potentially into potentially make addictive it addictive <laughs> yeah exactly right i see
0: um so i mean this is all i think very important context that that people are going to love learning about and, and hearing and this is going to help people think about things uh, in a little bit more of a critical way i want to now get you talking about critical periods, and I'll let you pick which one you want to talk about, ocular dominus plasticity or the, or the behavior one. Can you talk about what critical periods are in a way that enables you to explain some of these things like the maturation of inhibition and to give some examples of that extra context that you see in vivo that you don't have in vitro?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, critical periods... Um, you know they're not just like special periods of time. That's a that's a formal definition, uh, a word that was invented in 1935 um, to describe imprinting behavior in snow geese. Um, so this is that behavior where um, you know if an if a, a bird is hatched and within 48 hours of hatching it's exposed to you know a flying object, it'll form a lifetime attachment to that object, and usually that's you know, it's mother, but if the mother has died or isn't around, it can be another, um, it's a, it can be another animal, it can be a scientist, it can be a, you know, airplane, right? But after that 48 hours passes, then flying objects in the vicinity don't have that special meaning or special ability to induce an attachment. And so that window of time, that 48 hours um when the animal is extremely sensitive to its environment, to specific kinds of stimuli in its environment, and is able to form a long lasting connection or attachment or a learned behavior, um, that window of time is called a critical period. And there have been since, you know, 1935, literally dozens of these critical periods that have been described. So you mentioned ocular dominance, plasticity, that's probably the one that we've done the most amount of study on um, mechanistically, but there are others as well, like language learning and uh, motor learning and um, sensory touch learning. Um, These windows of time, you know, they're different for different um, learned behaviors, um, but There, they exist, you know, throughout development. And so, in the sort of almost 100 years since we knew about critical periods, neuroscientists have had the intuition that part of the reason that we're so bad at curing diseases, um, especially neuro and psychiatric diseases, is because by the time we intervene, by the time we get to that. Um, uh, that time when we can, you know, reverse the blindness or, you know, put in the cochlear implant, um, that the relevant critical period that supports the learning around that function has already closed. And so we've spent a huge amount of effort trying to discover mechanisms that constrain critical periods to those windows of times and trying to figure out ways to reopen those critical periods with the intuition that if we can reopen them, then we can do a much better job therapeutically. So um, there are basically three overarching mechanisms that we've identified for how critical periods um, close. Um, there there are a lot of nuances here. I'm skipping over. I just kind of the the view from ten thousand feet is is that basically those mechanisms I described about um, what constrains plasticity are also what constrain critical periods. So you know, metaplasticity is one of the major mechanisms that we think is responsible for you know, the critical period closing. Another one is maturation of inhibition, and then the third one is this maturation of the extracellular matrix.
0: I see. So as development proceeds, animals can become more or less sensitive to different things in the environment. They can become more or less capable of learning certain types of things. All of that involves neuroplastic changes, um, and the extent to which those changes can take place is governed by physical changes in the brain that happen as, as the brain is maturing. So maybe, um, inhibitory neurons are maturing and you get more of them. And so they further constrain activity as you proceed from, from step one stage of development to another, um, the physical external extracellular space, um, and sort of like the hardness or malleability of it can change. And, uh, you know, the, the more squishy it is, the more plasticity you might have, and the harder it is, so to speak, the less plasticity you might have. There are these kinds of physical changes constraining plasticity across development. And those are exactly the types of things that you're sort of missing when you're doing petri dish experiments.
1: That's right. Okay. Okay. Yep.
0: So you had previously in your lab looked at this social reward learning critical period. And you had done some experiments involving MDMA, which is very, very well known to have pro-social effects and to affect social behavior. So it made perfect sense that you would try this type of experiment. Can you concisely just remind people what that result was before we go into the new experiments?
1: Yeah. So basically, we knew from you know the hum- the literature that there must be a, a critical period for social reward learning, which is, you know, we think is related to why teenagers are so much more susceptible to peer pressure than adults are, why, you know, when you grow up in a certain culture, you are able to learn the rules of that culture. But, you know, years later, if you go somewhere else, you can be a little bit awkward and, um, you know, rude, potentially, well, in a different culture, because you didn't you your critical period for that type of social learning has already closed. Um and so we, we had some inkling that that existed, but what my lab did in that uh, first paper was to formally define that critical period for social reward learning. And you can think of it as, you know, learning from your social environment. Um, and what we found is, is that just like other critical periods by adulthood, it's closed. Um, and the animals are really not learning from their social environment um, in a reward-based way, the way that they do when they're juveniles but when we gave MDMA and then waited for 48 hours, then the adult animals were able to learn from their social environment again, just the way that the juveniles did. And we did a bunch of experiments to kind of convince ourselves that that was really what was going on, control experiments. But basically what we deduced is is that that MDMA is reopening that social reward learning critical period. And as you mentioned, you know, the reason that we did that experiment is intuitively we thought, okay, great. MDMA is pro-social. This is a social critical period. So of course it should be able to, you know, open this critical period. And we thought that the reason that MDMA was working was specifically about that, that pro-social quality. That's not really shared with other psychedelics. Um, And then we thought this was going to be unique to MDMA. And Mm -hmm. we were Mm
0: wrong. and, and you know one detail i want to point out to people there it, it, is it significant that um you give the drug but then you know you wait 2 days and you can still measure these changes while the drug is presumably fully out of the system
1: that's right because we were trying to measure social reward learning, we didn't want to be measuring the acute, acute pro effects of MDMA, which, you know, others have done in, you know, other animals, we've done it in octopuses, you know, they do, we can measure their acute, you know, interest in being sociable, but we didn't want to measure that. We wanted to know what happens after the fact, um, while they're not in this acute, you know, cuddle puddle mode, right? And so, um, We that's why we waited. Um, We did actually do a a time course of it. And it turns out that this ability to open this critical period starts to come on right away and lasts for about two weeks with MDMA and then Um, that critical period reopening uh, effect goes away. And so we thought, okay, lasts a little bit longer than we thought. And we thought this is probably explains why the clinicians are so focused on that integration period after the acute psychedelic effects have worn off and how important that support that they give to the patients after the fact really is to integrate their their newly discovered, um, you know,
0: Mm-hmm. memories. Um, yeah. So, so in the context of if you try and sort of fit your experimental results in rodents together with the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy results for PTSD, the idea is the MDMA is not fixing the PTSD. It's, it's making the brain more malleable essentially for a period of time. And that enables therapy that's happening right after the drug is administered in the days and, and weeks after it's administered to be uh, more effective than it otherwise would be.
1: Well, to be clear, that's what we think now, but at the time that that first paper came out, that's not really the the emphasis we put at that time because we we thought oh it's pro-social that this is really about the therapeutic alliance with the with the clinician or being able to love yourself again and we really thought it was all about the social, um, this idea that maybe what MDMA and all psychedelics are doing um, is that they are reopening critical periods is really the insight of the new paper.
0: Mm-hmm. And can't
1: so, why we think that?
0: Yeah, what was the why? Why did you go down this route? What made you think that? Um, you know, as we said. MDMA is a great candidate drug for something like uh, being able to, to influence the social reward uh, learning critical period just because of how, how famous the pro-social effects of MDMA are. What made you think it could be possible that something like Ibogaine or LSD would, would potentially have a similar effect?
1: Right. So, I mean, basically, when we did that experiment, I thought, well, they're not none of the other psychedelics are going to do it. Right. Because nobody's doing a 60 person cuddle puddle on LSD or Ibogaine. Right. Like they're just not particularly pro-social. So when we did that first experiment with LSD as a control, really, um, and LSD also reopened it, I thought that was some sort of mistake. We redid it. We did. Uh, it a couple of times we tried to uh, the other psychedelics, yeah. and all of the psychedelics were reopening. Uh, this so it was
0: period. you were you were using something like LSD as a control. Um, yeah. There's as a brief aside. There's this very famous book in molecular biology called The Eighth Day of Creation, and there's this beautiful. Anecdote that's sort of very beautifully described uh, in that book, and it, 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 sort of the punchline is something like, um, "and then the control became the experiment." And you just reminded me of that. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Um, you know, because we we had already done the cocaine experiment, and cocaine doesn't reopen this critical period, which you mm-hmm. know, you know, is it, an important control because there is some it's over- psych-
0: psychoactive. It's it's inducing plasticity, but it doesn't reopen this critical period.
1: That's right. And it's also, you know, a stimulant drug, it works on some of the same, there's overlap in terms of mechanism with MDMA. So it was a really important control. And so we had the cocaine experiment, and I thought the LSD was going to be the same thing. And it wasn't. And so when it wasn't, that immediately put into our mind that, you know, while MDMA is different from the psychedelics, because of this pro-social property, it's, in the same category as other psychedelics, because it also induces this altered state of consciousness shared by all of the psychedelics. And so maybe we thought this altered state of consciousness is really just what it feels like to reopen critical periods. Um, And, you know, that's sort of a wild idea, but we have a couple of pieces of information that support that view. One is, you know, they all do it. The other is, and, and cocaine doesn't, um, the other is, is that we found that there is a proportionality between the duration of the acute subjective effects of the psychedelics and the duration of the open state of the critical period that we can induce. So for example, we know that psychedelics vary a huge amount in how long they last, right? So ketamine lasts about 30 minutes to two hours, MDMA and psilocybin were like three to five hours, LSD like eight hours, ibogaine, you know, 36 to 72 hours, you know, just extremely long trip. And what we found is is that just like that variability in the duration of the acute subjective effects, the open state induced by them is similar, or it's proportional. So ketamine opens for 48 hours, by a week it's closed psilocybin and mdma open for 2 weeks and by 3 weeks they're closed lsd open for 3 weeks closed by 4 weeks i began open you know as long as we've ever looked so 4 weeks was the longest we ever looked so that proportionality says oh these things must be related right mm-hmm. and so that's another piece of evidence so, and then, okay, so, oh, okay so so ba- so
0: basically yeah just to summarize <clears throat> You have a way to assay social reward learning in mice. So you have, you know, we don't need to go into the details there, but you guys can measure this in the lab. It's been done before many times. You give each of these drugs: MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, ibogaine, ketamine. They all have different mechanisms of action to some extent compared one to the other. They all last for variable lengths of time, some of them relatively short, some of them much longer, like Ibogaine. If you give the, each drug to mice and then you wait and the drug goes out of the system and then you measure you know, day after day after day, are they capable of this social reward learning? Is that critical period open? The answer with all of them is yes. And the amount of time after the drug is out of their system that remains open seems to be proportional to the amount of time the acute effects of the drug last. That's
1: right, exactly. Okay.
0: Interesting. So uh, so you do those experiments, um, you find that result. <clears throat> what about, you know, so one one sort of personal question I have around those particular experiments and that result is, you know, they all have different lengths of subjective effects they, because uh, they're tied to how long they sit at the receptor. <clears throat> so you probably would expect them expect some kind of relationship like that. The longer the drug lasts, the longer sort of the inertia of its molecular consequences is going to last. Um, is there a particular reason why you didn't test something like DMT or 5-MeO-DMT, just given the intensity and the short duration of those drugs?
1: Yeah. So we I get that question basically every time I present, and it's a really good experiment. Um, and I'll tell you, the real reason we didn't do it is um, just like boring technical reasons like Um, you know, it's not easy to deliver DMT, you know, by, um, we just aren't set up to give inhaled DMT. Um, and then, you know, we could give it orally, but then we have to give, um,
0: Oh, the MAOI and that's another MAOI
1: And there's a lot of reports from humans that, um, you know, there's a lot of nausea associated with that and mice can't vomit. And so we, Thought ah, <laughs> you know, ah,
0: I didn't even think yeah, about that. Yes, yes, they're yes. going
1: to be you know nauseated for you know however long. Yeah, and that's another
0: factor. That's be yeah. A good,
1: so, but we did we did do an experiment to try and get at the same thing, which is we we gave LSD in massive amounts, right? So we we did fifty times the dose that would be normally sufficient to reopen the critical period um, in mice. And when we did that, that 50 times dose presumably would be a much more intense experience, yeah. kind of like the throwing somebody out of a helicopter description of the DMT experience. And yet the critical period didn't stay open longer because mm. we gave a more intense LSD experiment. So it, it stayed the same amount of time.
0: I see. So, we
1: suspect that as you as you hinted at, it's not the intensity of the experience, it's the duration of the, I think, probably something like receptor occupancy, you know, we Mm -hmm. know from LSD that when it sits in a receptor, it sits there for an unusually long amount of time. And that long receptor occupancy, or that very slow half off rate is what it's called, um, triggers a type of signaling called uh, beta arrestin, which is known to kind of be involved in internalizing receptors and essentially hitting the reset button which is exactly the kind of molecular mechanism we would expect when we um you know talk about reopening critical mm. periods um sort of a molecular reset of the synapse um we also are aware that you know ketamine has a you know, pretty slow off rate off of the NMDA receptor that it binds to. So maybe what's going on and we don't, we haven't tested this yet. We're still, you know, this is just a, a hypothesis at this point. Um, but basically the idea is, is that maybe the the thing that is common across the drugs that are able to do this uh, is that they're sitting in their receptor too long and that is selling the synapse. Oh no, something bad is happening excited toxicity is going to happen if we don't hit the reset button and it causes a reset. Um, So this reset could be because of too much activity or sometimes, you know, you hit the reset on your computer if the screen freezes, right? So things have changed in
0: some significant way,
1: some significant way that the brain says, this is not good reset. And then it pulls in the receptors sets off the molecular machinery that, you know, degrades the extracellular matrix, you know, turns on a bunch of genes and says, let's reset.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what is happening. Okay. So uh, just to summarize and lead into like sort of the next part of this, um, we know that these drugs work in different ways, right? So like the psychedelic effects of LSD and psilocybin depend on their ability to activate 5-HG2A receptors. Not true for ketamine, right? It's acting through NMD receptors and other things. Not true for ibogaine. It's doing yet other things. Not true for MDMA. It's sort of just running serotonin transporters and stuff in reverse. So mm-hmm. there's overlap between each of them to some extent, but they have very different ways that they work molecularly. And yet they're all capable of inducing this uh, reopening of the social reward critical period. So there must be some kind of common denominator that they all converge on is, is what you would think. Um, and so you guys dug into that. And so what did you find there?
1: Right. So we we started, you know, as you said, looking at the things that we predicted based on the LSD. So we looked at the 2A receptor, we looked at beta arrest and signaling and, you know, We found that those things were important for, you know, some subtypes of psychedelics, but not the universal mechanism that could account for all of the psychedelics. But we did have the intuition that it might not be at that receptor or biochemical level anyway, because of how long these effects were lasting, right? So, you know, with MDMA working, you know, showing open state of the critical period for two weeks, you know, I began for four weeks. Even ketamine at 48 hours, we were thinking, well, gosh, that's not going to be just sitting at the receptor for 48 hours, or even changing the biochemical signaling cascades for 48 hours or two weeks or a month. It's got to be at the level of um, translation, transcription, you know, editing of of um, the molecular machinery and the and the um, DNA. And so we did some. Uh, RNA sequencing experiments um, in, and we took advantage of the fact that we had not only different psychedelic time courses, so we knew that you know ketamine was going to keep it open for 48 hours, but be closed at two weeks, whereas LSD was going to be open at two weeks and uh, 48 hours. We also knew that cocaine was not going to do it, but all the psychedelics were, and so we we ran. Uh, we took, we injected animals with these different drugs and waited different amounts of time. And then we microdissected out that nucleus accumbens that we talked about earlier as being an important part of that mesocortico-limbic reward circuit. And we just looked at the um, transcriptional profile um, across all of those different conditions. And when we did that, what was amazing is, is that we were able to narrow it down, Um, you know, genes change all over the all the time, right. And so if you aren't careful about how you design your experiment, you can just end up with, you know, 20,000 genes changed, and you have no idea what's going on. But what using this very um, sort of narrowly defined, you know, Set of circumstances that are in the open state versus the not open state, but versus the closed state. We were able to narrow it down to sixty-five genes that were differentially expressed in the open state compared to the closed state. And when we did that, what we noticed is is that roughly twenty percent of those genes are regulators of the extracellular matrix or components of the extracellular matrix, and that was. Just super exciting to us because, as I mentioned, extracellular matrix regulation had already been implicated, you know, in other critical period, the closure of other Mm -hmm. critical period. Mm -hmm. And this was just mind-blowing because even though nobody had ever looked at extracellular matrix regulation um, with regard to critical periods in the nucleus succumbens, and even though the molecular identities of the of the genes wasn't identical; they were in the same category, mm-hmm. right? So, in the visual cortex, people had really focused on matrix metalloprotease nine, and we came up with, you know, mm, which is MMP MMP sixteen in the nucleus. Mm-hmm. So, not identical, but the same family. Mm-hmm. That so was just remarkable to us.
0: So, so roughly, the idea here is, again, you get the same basic result with respect to reopening this critical period with ibogaine lsd psilocybin mdma ketamine they're all touching different receptors to different extents but after they do that they are affecting which genes are being turned on and off inside of neurons and there's sort of a common core that seems to be common to all of them that they all eventually arrive at through their own different ways and many of those genes involve regulating how what's a good way to say this, how, how squishy the extracellular matrix is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, we not we're still digging into this, um, in, in the follow-up experiments, but my, our working model is, is that what they're doing is, uh, as you said, acting at their own receptors, hitting, hitting the reset button in some way. And that what is going on is, is that that is telling the neuron degrade the extracellular matrix make a bunch of you know enzymes that are going going to go out into the extracellular matrix and chew it up and take it apart right so um, and that degradation of the extracellular matrix you know is is a is a event that is encoded by the set of genes that we found um and what we're what we're finding with those genes is just the sort of homeostatic response to kind of, okay, we degraded it. Now we used up all of those things we need to make new to replace the things that we degraded. So, um, but that's the idea is, is that it's dissolving or degrading the extracellular matrix, taking it down so that new memories can be formed via, you know, new metaplasticity that's enabled by this sort of cleaning house uh, of the extracellular matrix. And once those new memories get laid in the new extracellular matrix will get down to sort of lock those memories in place. Mm
0: -hmm. And so, you know, with all of this, all of these results in mind and and everything you've been telling us, you know, I want to get into a discussion of the therapeutic relevance of the psychedelic or psychoactive effects that these drugs have. And so earlier, you know, we were talking about we were talking about nomenclature and what words to use to describe these drugs and how we classify them. And there's also, you know, their effects and what they have in common or don't have in common. And on the one hand, it's super hard to talk about because it's very subjective. And many of these experiences are so alien to our normal experience that you know, your your linguistic faculties literally break down if you take enough acid. So it's really <laughs> hard to talk about this stuff. And but I think a people with a lot of personal experience with these drugs would probably tell you is that you know a deep ketamine experience and a deep LSD experience are as different from each other as they are from everyday waking consciousness and so you know that common denominator is almost nothing other than the uh unnormalness of the experience um, I I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, William James. He, you know, famously had his description of what he, uh, imagined a, a newborn baby's conscious experience was like, and he called it a, a booming buzzing confusion. And so if you're sort of hit, hitting this reset button and the details of the experience and everything are different for, you know, something like say psilocybin versus something like ketamine or ibogaine, what they have in common is that the, um, the spatial-temporal dynamics or the statistics of what's going on are being sort of scrambled. They're not as uh, regular as they are when we are, um, you know, sitting sitting here and having this conversation and having our normal uh, normal experiences. Um, so, if what they have in common is sort of just this general reset and this general uh, being different from from everyday normal experience. How do we start to tie that to the question that everyone's interested in right now um, and different people are pursuing different ways of whether or not you can engineer out the sort of subjective psychedelic experience from these drugs and still have um, the therapeutic potential that, that we're seeing?
1: Yeah. So my intuition on that last part is that no, we won't be able to engineer out the, the psychedelic effect. Um, and that's, partially based on that proportionality experiment that i described in other words you know as you um shorten the duration of the effect you shorten the ability to reopen the critical period and if reopening critical periods is the thing right that is responsible for um these not just like you know i think people are excited about psychedelics because they are Um, not just next generation SSRIs or next generation anxiolytics, they're not exciting because, you know, we're going to have to take them for life and, you know, um, medicalize people and treat their symptoms rather people are excited because this could be a cure you know you take it maybe one or two times maybe five times if it's a really entrenched you know um, memory that needs a lot of work to be resolved um, but then you're cured you don't have to take them again and you don't have to be on them forever you know and that excitement is that you know we could have a neuropsychiatric cure that's similar to say you know putting in, a new valve, if you have a heart problem, right, like a sort of surgical, you're cured after this intervention. And I think that all of the effort to engineer out the um, psychedelic, quote, unquote, side effect is really, you know, following the old fashioned, you know, big pharma model of, you know, we're we're looking for symptom treatment. And I, I think, for me, you know, it's, as as an MD, I I can't say that that is particularly exciting. I'm really excited about these as, you know, the surgical type of model of we're going to cure people of their diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting back to your, your more philosophical question about, you know, maybe what's common to these things is just that they're inducing such a radical shift in your perception of the world that that is that that's really the only thing that's common to them and that that's somehow triggering critical period reopening. And I think that that's maybe right. Um, I I actually think that if we think about what it is, why it is that we have critical periods, right, and why it is they close and then why it is that a brain might want to have a ready-made mechanism for reopening them, um, we can sort of think about the fact that, you know, critical periods – exist because there aren't enough genes to encode all of the things we might need to learn in the world right Like there aren't enough genes to encode 250 different languages mm-hmm. so instead we have genes that encode the ability to learn 250 different languages and you learn the one that's relevant to the environment that you are born in right um, so that ability to learn from your environment is why we have critical periods but then You know, all that sort of flexible learning and being sensitive to the world and being hyper aware of what's in in your environment. It's exhausting. Emotionally, Mm -hmm. it's exhausting. I mean, who wants to be a teenager again where you have to care about the exact right shade of acid wash jeans you're going to wear, right? It sucks. It's hard. It's it's. Training, it help, it distracts you from being able to focus on other things. And so, in general, what we think is that critical periods close because, you know, it's not an efficient way to navigate the world, to be constantly hyper aware and learning. You literally um,
0: couldn't survive. You really couldn't in, in the limit, like, right? You can't be on DMT for <laughs> days and weeks. <laughs> right, and, and you can see it
1: also in kids. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, my friends um kids I go on nature walks with them sometime in the park and like you know what I would normally do in an hour takes us three hours because they are just noticing everything you know like oh look at that leaf and you know oh what is this thing and you know it's just not an efficient way to you mm-hmm. know do the walk and come back because they're learning because they're hyper aware um and you just couldn't navigate the world that way normally and, and you know people yep. on psychedelics are the same You know, they're just,
0: yeah. right? and- I mean and if if it's sort of this general picture is true that these kinds of drugs are sort of a master key for for rebooting the brain temporarily and reopening critical periods generally a natural question that I'm sure you you and others are pursuing to some extent is well you guys looked at the social reward learning critical period you guys looked at this particular form of oxytocin dependent plasticity in one particular part of the brain the drugs aren't limited to that part of the brain they're getting everywhere um, are you guys doing experiments looking at ocular dominance plasticity, critical periods, and all these other things, and confirming that they are this sort of general reboot mechanism?
1: Yeah, so we're definitely pursuing that. We have some, you know, very preliminary data suggesting that they do reopen other critical periods, like critical periods for motor learning, critical periods for. Um, uh, ocular dominance plasticity. So we're we're definitely that's that's the next area. But let me just go back one second and and uh, finish talking about why it is that we might have a general mechanism, a master key for unlocking critical periods. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is is that normally habits are great and they help you navigate the world as long as the environment is stable. But imagine that there's a radical shift in your environment. You move to a new country where nobody speaks your language. Entire social group gets eaten by a wolf or there's a, you know, giant pandemic, right? Under those circumstances, or the elders in your social community die. Um, in the under those circumstances, you can imagine that it would be very adaptive for the brain to kind of reopen certain critical periods in a context dependent way and be able to reconfigure those habits, um, that are specific. So I think your intuition that. Um, You know, maybe what's common about psychedelics is that they are a very assertive or efficient way of triggering that massive alteration in your state stable environment could be right. And we have some evidence that that's true, um, because historically, one of the other ways that people have, you know, master key style reopened other critical periods is by massive deprivation experiments, right? So you can do visual deprivation Mm. and reopen visual critical periods. You can do um, uh, somatosensory deprivation and reopen touch critical periods, auditory deprivation to reopen auditory critical periods. We have some, you know, preliminary evidence that says that social deprivation can reopen the social critical period. And what's amazing is, is that Mm. all of these deprivation techniques are what, um, you know, a lot of religious and mystical traditions have used yes. in order to get to that mystical state that is common between, you know, religious practices and psychedelics. And so we think it's not a coincidence, for example, that, um, you know, Zen Buddhists go and live in a hermitage or a monastery, you know, do massive social deprivation experiments, essentially, or, you know, these... um meditation practices and silent retreats and stuff. These are deprivation experiments, essentially, to get to what the Zen Buddhists are calling beginner's mind. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you were looking for a neurobiological term to explain beginner's mind, critical Mm -hmm. period reopening would be it. And so to me, this is more circumstantial evidence that that Altered state of consciousness, that mystical experience that's common to psychedelics and religious practices is just what it feels like to reopen critical periods.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that would that, that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. I mean, you could also uh, you know, on the deprivation side, I didn't even think about this piece, but but it makes a lot of sense. People have historically used deprivation to to do neuroscience stuff. Um, but you know, people also report going into the sensory deprivation tanks completely sober and having something like a psychedelic experience. And it would just be uh, to sort of restate what you're saying. These are non-pharmacological ways to radically change the statistics of what's coming into the brain, such Mm -hmm. that the brain sort of goes through this reboot process, so to speak.
1: Yeah. That's what we think.
0: Interesting. So what are... The potential risks and downsides here. So, you know, obviously, well, before we actually get to that, so one of one of the exciting things about this, um, assuming all this stuff really sort of turns out to be true, is we can we can do things to help people where it was it it was just too late before. So, for example, if someone's born with autism. Being agnostic about what exactly caused that, but you know, they go through their social reward learning critical period of of some kind. They become an adult. The extracellular matrix is now uh, hardened, and it's really hard for them to relearn or unlearn things. The idea would be we could make their brain squishy again, so to speak, for a limited period of time. Give them the right kind of social stimuli, and you know, treat or potentially even cure something like that. Um, but we couldn't do that before because we had no way. You know, even if we had therapy and other tools, there was their brain just wasn't going to be receptive to the requisite stimuli that that it needed to uh, resculpt itself or remake itself. So, so is is this the hope here that now we can go in and treat or potentially even cure certain types of neuropsychiatric conditions by temporarily making the brain receptive to the right kind of stimuli again?
1: That's right. That's exactly the way that we're thinking about it, um, and we are. Looking at autism because you know that's one of the major focuses of my lab. Um, I will say, um, and we're but we're also focused on things like stroke, where you know after you have a stroke, there is a sort of there's a motor critical period in general, and it gets reopened when you have a stroke, and that stays open for about three months, but then it closes again. And to date, the only way to reopen it is to give yourself another stroke. And who wants to cure stroke by giving themselves a stroke, right? So being able to give, you know, in theory, a psychedelic to reopen um, that motor critical period after a stroke would be, you know, exactly as you described, you know, pairing the psychedelic with the physical therapy could really, you know, enable us to to, uh, treat these brain diseases that we just don't have any other hope for at this point. So it would be a, a massive, massive paradigm shift for um, all of neuropsychiatric disease and neurology and psychiatry and neurosurgery. Everybody would be impacted. But also, you know, like I can imagine, you know, language schools opening up, right? It, it would be potentially, um, you know, a game changer and in, in ability to rapidly induce this Restore, restoration of that state of malleability. I would just say, you know, you mentioned, well, what are the, what might be some of the downsides? And I just want to kind of go back to this idea of, you know, the critical period. I mean, when I was a graduate student at MIT, we were in a little bit of a heated debate with another lab at Harvard. And you know, the debate was kind of like, is there a master key? Could there be a master key for reopening critical periods? And I was very much on the side of no way anything that can do that is going to, you know, essentially um, either be, you know, amnestic or going to cause seizure or is going to disrupt the structural integrity of the brain, right, based on our understanding of the mechanisms of critical period. And I call that the melty brain problem. So how is it that psychedelics might be circumventing the melty brain problem? Like, how are they doing it? And my intuition is that the way that psychedelics circumvent the melty brain problem is that they are, their effects are context dependent. So it's not like you take a psychedelic and all critical periods are just open all the time. And you're just, you're able to learn anything. The subset of synapses, circuits, you know, memories that become available for modification seem to be context dependent or activity dependent, right? So it's not like you can take MDMA and go to a rave and expect to cure your PTSD. You really need to pair that MDMA with the psychotherapeutic context. We also have some evidence that, you know, you need the social context to reopen the social critical period. But if you're trying to reopen a motor critical period, the social context doesn't matter Mm -hmm. because not a social critical
0: period. Do and you think, so, do yeah. you think this sort of, this context dependency has something potentially to do with, uh, the potential relevance of the subjective effects themselves? So, f- so for example, you know, if someone, you know, I, I talked to, um, someone on the podcast a couple years ago, who was an early participant in psilocybin assisted therapy, uh, For for addiction. He he was a a severe alcoholic. And he described, and and it worked beautifully for him. That's great. And then he also described that the specific content of his experience was very, very much related to his addiction. He saw an alcohol bottle breaking and turning into sand and turning into dust. And he interpreted that to mean that his alcoholism was leaving him. And, you know, wow. One reaction to that could be like, you know, that's just a side effect. It's great. That's a wonderful experience. But another way to think about that is, you know, if you're having that kind of experience as an alcoholic versus a a trip where none of the none of the content has anything to do with your alcoholism, that represents a different set of circuits being engaged in a different kind of way when you have the one experience versus the other. And so, do you think there's there's something there?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that basically, you know, we did this, we did do an experiment in the paper that uh, just came out that where we looked at whether or not the psychedelics seem to be having, you know, a direct effect on addiction-like behaviors using all of the sort of typical neuroscience, you know, I come from an addiction lab, um, and you know, we, we looked at, you know, does it change the reward value? That would be the prediction. Like it changes the reward value, drug of abuse, no longer addictive, you know, in the, in the sort of classically defined dopamine reward value type of way. And it didn't, it, the psychedelics had no effect on those things. Instead, what we think is happening, and this is very much in line with the patient narratives, is, is that it's not changing the reward value of the drug itself, Going back to that prefrontal cortex, part of the mesocortical limbic reward circuit, what we think is, is that it's changing the narrative a person has, like and enables them to write a different narrative around the um, why they're using the drug and what need they're trying to solve or problem they're trying to solve by using the drug. So the epiphanies that people describe are not like suddenly... I lost my taste for nicotine, the way that people describe when they take Zyban or, you know, one of these other uh, drug, like sort of drug addiction type of typical drugs. Instead, what they're describing is I had an epiphany. And after that epiphany, I realized that, you know, the problem that I was trying to solve doesn't exist anymore. And so, you know, smoking a cigarette to solve that problem seems as foolish as leaving out cookies and hoping that a fat man will come down the chimney and leave me presents, right? It's just a myth I don't believe anymore. And so that cognitive reappraisal, that cognitive flexibility is very much going to be driven by the context that you go into the psychedelic experience with, right? Like if you go into the psychedelic experience you know, already kind of priming yourself, preparing yourself for these are the set of memories that I want to examine when I'm on this trip, then they become available for modification and become um, sort of malleable for for those kinds of changes.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that's interesting here when we sort of step back from the science side of this a little bit, and, you know, you, you talked about things like parallels between psychedelics, Drug-induced psychedelic experiences, and different forms of sensory deprivation, and different religious religious rituals, and things like this. You know, when you think about human beings, just compared to other animals generally, human beings are sort of the most context adaptable. You know, we we populated the globe. We've had to more than almost any other creature go into and out of different contexts all the time. You know, taking off your just your your hat purely as a scientist for for a moment what what do you think about that what do you think about do you think that things like um, a lot of the ritual practices that often have uh, often take the form of of religions and things like this do you think that has something to do with sort of uh human's adaptability and and our ability throughout history to have spread into so many radically different contexts that we've come up with uh Self-imposed behavioral paradigms, um, with or without the assistance of substances, that enable us to, uh, uh, you know, flip the switch and adapt to radically new environments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, these are big questions, and I I just, you know, recently applied for a a big sort of high grant, um, and and this is basically the question that I was trying to get at, and the way that I think about it is. I want to take the evolutionary view. I am generally of the belief that humans aren't as special as we think we are. We just, we just notice what we do more because it's us. Right. But um, I, I like taking the evolutionary view and, you know, I think that we can learn a lot by taking a massive step backward and look and, and, and sort of up and out and look at species like octopuses where Um, You know, they are radically different from us in many, many ways. Um, And yet they are also very adaptable. They can live at massively different temperatures compared to what we can survive in. They, you know, have taken over the entire ocean. They're, you know, lots of different species. They've, you know, they're very, and they learn and they learn from their environment and they seem to um, have these abilities. But, Um, We don't know if they have critical periods, if they have, you know, they might not. Right. So like they can lose an arm and regrow it. So they might not have a motor critical period because why would you need one if your arm can always grow back. Right. Um, On the other hand, you know, we have some evidence that they can mostly they're asocial, but in some species, if you rear them under social conditions, they can adapt and be socially tolerant and not, you know, kill all of the other animals in the tank, right? And so they do have this adaptability, but it might be that um, this human sort of adaptability, the reason that we are so interested in being able to reopen critical periods, either by drugs or by religious practices, is because we live for a really long time, right? So, you know, the rules of the worlds that you learned when you were 12 might not be the same as when you're 65. And so I think it's not that surprising that, you know, people have a midlife crisis and oftentimes go on some religious experience, Mm. some pilgrimage, and they reset because they need to adapt to a world that's very different than the one that they, you know, Adapted to when they were children, so we'll see. We uh, octopuses don't live that long. There are some species that do, but the ones that we're interested in, um, you know, live shorter, more like mice. And so, you know, we'll see. But it's definitely an exciting question.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that um, deprivation is a stimulus that reliably. Uh, Induces certain changes in the brain and in experience. Um, it's it's doubly interesting that it's sort of uh, a major thing that most of us are lacking these days. M- most of us, uh, you know, we're constantly plugged into our, all of our technology and we're hyperconnected. Um, and it's interesting that that deprivation is uh, it it seems to be capable, at least in certain contexts, of of mimicking some of the the pharmacological uh, effects that we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, well, I do actually believe that the pandemic was a massive deprivation experiment, um, although it went on too long. And so, you know, if you socially deprive animals for too long, then instead of reopening critical periods, it looks like what it's doing is, um, you know, causing depression and anxiety. Um, So like the duration matters, right? But um, it's just become the new thing. But I think for some people... Um, you know, early on in the pandemic, when we were socially depriving before we had kind of tipped over into too long, and now it's, you know, pathological, um, you know, that people did have that kind of experience of, whoa, the world is so weird. Um, and, you know, it's true that we are much more plugged in in many ways. And, um you know, it'd be interesting to do some sort of epidemiological study to look across cultures and, you know, different illness conditions. I mean, I suspect that um, this is, this happens to one degree or another more commonly than we are really aware of, um, depending on what your circumstances are. But I also think, for example, The reason that it's easier to learn a new language or to learn Spanish in Guatemala compared to Costa Rica is is that in Costa Rica, everybody speaks English. Um, So even though you're surrounded by Spanish, you're not deprived of English first, whereas Mm. in Guatemala, you have the deprivation, the English deprivation combined with the Spanish immersion. And then I think you're in that open state, which makes it easier to learn Spanish.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, one of the things that you pointed out earlier is, you know, one of the reasons why this is so exciting, these kinds of results with with psychedelics, is um it, it really does seem like we could be on the cusp of seriously being able to talk about curing certain psychiatric diseases rather than just treating some of the symptoms that some of them have, and you made some comments around, you know, our tendency to medicalize, you know, everything that we see and just sort of paper over symptoms. How so? So, sort of in the traditional way that we've approached treating psychiatric problems for people, where we're diagnosing um, people based on symptoms, we are giving them drugs often for very, very long periods of time, potentially permanently, to treat the symptoms rather than cure the the cause of the symptoms, how much of that, or can you just talk a little bit about the extent to which we've been doing that simply because we're ignorant and we haven't learned enough about the brain to be able to cure things. And all we can do is treat some of the symptoms and how, to what extent is that due to the sort of, um, you know, the fact that, um, it's very convenient from a business standpoint to just, Give people drugs to treat symptoms chronically, and there's kind of inertia involved in sort of the general structure of how those businesses work. Uh, so to what extent is this ignorance versus you know business motives and things, and and how, how do you see that maybe changing uh, in the next five to ten years?
1: Well, honestly, I, I think it's the business thing. I think it's just you know the market is driving the. Um, interventions. And, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I'm a little bit concerned that psychedelics are about to be co-opted by that business model, because there's just such a inertia around, you know, funding for these types of questions, funding for these types of companies. You know, it's hard to convince venture capitalists that they need to, you know, invest in something that there might not be a back end on because, you know, the people will just be cured and that the best molecules are the ones that humans have been using for 1000s of years, right? It's just, there's a lot of momentum financially. And these clinical trials are expensive, you know, It, it costs $200 million to run a, you know, well, double blind placebo controlled, you know, large scale um, clinical trial, right? So it's, it's expensive. And so I think that's where the the momentum is coming. And I fear that, you know, um, psychedelics are going to be the same thing, you know, it's going to people are going to try and patent um, new molecules, um, based on, you know, supposed improved properties that are not necessarily going to be improvements. And if we're not careful to understand the true mechanism, to understand that what the therapeutic benefits we've seen so far are really about learning and memory, not about you know some property like hyperplasticity that you can measure in a dish, then we're going to end up with another fentanyl face plant and it's not gonna be good for the patients and it's not gonna be good for the credibility of, you know, translational neuroscience.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like from your position as a neuroscientist, if you were advising people uh in the private sector, the psychedelic private sector on this, you know, whether it's VCs or entrepreneurs or anyone else, it sounds like your basic position is that you would be you would not be bullish on companies solely focused on trying to produce non-psychedelic, psychedelic psychedelic derivatives.
1: Right. I would say that those are likely to fail. And I would say that um, there's plenty of evidence now that even the sort of traditional SSRIs, you know, this, this whole model that there's, you know, a happiness pill that you can take is not right. And that, you know, really, if we think about what is causing depression, it's a learned set of behaviors and that, you have to learn something different from those experiences, or you have to not treat every single um, sort of um, bump in the road as if it's depression, but rather a potential learning experience that enables resilience. Like even resilience is a learned behavior. It's not a pill that you take, right? And so I think that If we start to treat psychedelics like SSRIs, we're going to end up with, you know, some effects in the beginning that get people excited, but in 30 years, they're going to be no different from SSRIs, which is basically that they don't work. Um, You know, they don't work if you try and narrowly push them into that model of depression. Mm -hmm. In fact, we don't even, you know, our results suggest that these antidepressive properties may exist, but they might not, but they're probably orthogonal to the ability to reopen critical periods. They're just, you know, these drugs can have lots of different properties, because they bind to lots of different receptors. And so even if you believe that depression is a property that you could target pharmacologically, um, it doesn't, it's not clear to me that psychedelics are antidepressants in that way, or that that's the at all the same thing as this context dependent, right? So that's the mm-hmm. key, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of these other properties that people are describing, anxiolytic property, anti-inflammatory property, anti nosusceptive property, these are properties that seem to exist independent of the context. Mm-hmm. But the critical period reopening property is context dependent, just like these durable therapeutic effects are context dependent, right? If you compare the clinical trials that, you know, MAPS did where they really focused on the psychotherapeutic context, then you got these massive results and, you know, sort of cured for life type of um, results from these patients for PTSD with MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Whereas in the trials where, you know, it was really the psychotherapy was there just in case somebody had a bad trip then, you know, it was kind of lackluster, like barely better than not, not at all better than SSRI, just kind of like starts onset faster, ketamine works faster, but then you have to take it again in a week, Uh, psilocybin, not better than SSRIs in terms of efficacy, you just didn't get the same wow effects that you got with MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And to me, the difference between those trials is not the drug. It's that, It's the emphasis of context. And so antidepressant properties are not context dependent, but critical period reopening is context dependent. Hmm.
0: What are some other critical periods that we know about in rodents? And I'm only asking about rodents just because in principle, we can start to understand mechanism there. And in some cases, maybe we already do understand something. Besides the social reward learning critical period that you guys have focused on and that we talked about today, are there other... Critical periods that involve learned behaviors, and, and if, if so, that, that have been worked out to some extent in terms of like maybe how they work, um, and if so, what are those in in rodents?
1: Well, theoretically, you know, critical periods were defined as behaviors that are changed, right? So the the imprinting behavior in snow geese is a behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, other critical periods that are behavioral only. I mean, I think we, I, I we I, in rodents, I'm not sure that we can say that there's a language critical period, but we know from birds that there's, you know, song learning is a behavior that is changed. Um, But in rodents, the reason that we use rodents is that it enables us to be able to do electrophysiology and more of these types of circuit mechanisms. And so the most famous critical periods in rodents are not behavioral so much as circuit rearrangements um, in response to, you know, visual stimulation changes or um, somatosensory stimulation changes or um, auditory inputs that can get changed. Those are the main critical periods. And that's not because there's any reason to believe that mechanistically they're different. It's just that we have studied them in rodents so that we would be able to look at these kinds of circuit level changes, rearrangements following perturbation.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about humans that that you uh, pointed out earlier is we live for so long and this just the longer you live, the likelier it is that you're going to have to deal with new contexts that may or may not sprout up um, in your environment over time. Um, do you think like, so, so when we sort of just take the bird's eye view of say, The trajectory of people's mental health generally and the types of illnesses that we see, you know, being diagnosed more and more um, or in different ways or in different times, things like that. How much of that do you think has to do with the fact that, you know, over time as technology and society have developed, we are now doing different things at different times. Um, And so what I mean by that is, you know, we used to, for example, start families and have babies not long after we became physiologically competent to reproduce. Um, but you know, over time that's gotten pushed further and further back and you know, the reaction or the ability of one to adapt to say that new social context, um, you know, you're going to have a different level of squishiness in your brain when that first happens. Um, do you think that, you know, any of the, you know, when we look at rates of depression and things like this, do you think any of that might have to do with the fact that as we've changed our own environment technologically and things um we have tended to put ourselves in in different circumstances at different phases of development than our ancestors tended to uh, have those experiences in does that does that make sense
1: it does but I don't think that that's I, I don't think that I, I I think that the increase in the rates of depression is because we have um, I mean, I, I, my lab may, mainly is a social neuroscience uh, lab, and I my intuition is is that the way that our social lives are structured are really bad for the social brain, right? I, I think that you know the way that we evolved, we were meant to live in communities, we were meant to live in one place for our, our whole lives and have a stable social group of you know maybe a hundred or so people. And now we live kind of socially isolated from each other. I talked to a real estate broker who told me that average American moves every six years. Um, You know, it's just, we don't have the same quality of stable social interactions and generational stability in our social environment. And I think that these impairments in or this degradation of our social lives um, is made worse by some of the modern technologies. I think that social media should really be called anti-social media because what you're basically exposing yourself to is a bunch of anxiety around social interactions, but you're doing it sitting by yourself in a dark room or staring into your cell phone without the sort of social buffering of fear that happens when you're hanging out with your buddies, when you're, you know, socially well-connected and there's more and more evidence that this has major impact on life expectancy, morbidity, mortality. Um, You know, it has immune uh, consequences. It has, you know, consequences on, you know, all of your, 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 sort of outside of the brain systems that are, you know, controlling your heart rate, your blood pressure, your, you know, ability to process foods well. And I just think that we sort of live in a, in a social world. That's more like uh, Velveta and less like Camembert. Right. And so we need to go back to Camembert social living in my view.
0: Um. Like how do we do that? Like, uh, are you you're are you a parent? Am I what? Are you a parent?
1: I am not a parent.
0: Oh, okay. I was but I'm an
1: aloe parent. I like to think. Of <laughs> allo parent. I am deeply embedded in my see these beautiful. I have these these beautiful paintings that were made for me by my. Ah.
0: Parents, uh, are those are those octopuses?
1: There's you know I they they know I love octopuses and mushrooms, so I have you know several octopuses, and this one right here is in octopus living inside of a mushroom. Um <laughs> so my friends' kids d- do them for my birthday and I, you know, I I save them. I love them. Um so yeah, I I definitely enjoy um being sort of cool anti-ghoul, although they're and they keep it real, you know, like they're uh one of them was telling the the 10-year-old was telling the seven year old, you know, ghoul knows a lot about animals, but not that much about dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> So
0: yeah. Um, okay, um, you know I don't want to take too much more of your time. I want to be respectful. Uh, I know you've got you've got things to do. Um, is there anything you want to reiterate or or any final thoughts you want to leave people with about sort of the just the general subject matter that we covered today?
1: Um, I guess the only other thing that we really didn't get spend a lot of time is that you know I really am very excited about um, the the clinical trial that we are raising money for, um, to look at whether or not we can pair psychedelics with, um, motor learning and specific types of motor training to, um, get much better stroke recovery outcomes. Um, and so, you know, if anybody's really interested in the stroke stuff, I encourage them to look up, um, the Fathom project, which is P- Fathom with a PH, which stands for psychedelic healing, adjunct therapy, harnessing open malleability. We have a, you know, a project page for that. And you can watch a little video of how we're gonna do it. And, you know, we're raising money for it. So if you know of somebody who wants to make a big donation, um, you know, those trials are expensive, but we are really excited that that's the the next direction to take. Mm
0: -hmm. And, you know, very briefly, what are um, some of the the obvious next experiments and next questions that you guys are doing to follow up the recent paper?
1: Yeah. So we're we're definitely trying to test this idea that psychedelics are the master key. So we're looking at lots of other critical periods. We really want to get a handle on this molecular um, mechanism. Like how does the cell know when it's in the right context? so we're trying to test the idea that there's some sort of molecular coincidence detection that's saying this neuron is recently active therefore you know if it's hit, got the reset button these are the ones around whom you want the extracellular matrix deg- degraded and so we're we're working on trying to understand that and then you know my my lab is Uh, we're really close, um, to being able to publish the genome of this octopus. And we think that understanding using psychedelics as a tool for understanding evolutionary mechanisms is something really powerful. And, um, you know, what, what another big direction that we're going.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like it might be possible, um, that this, you know, enhanced malleability, this increase in metaplasticity, um, it's possible that there is some spatial specificity to that. It's not like you have to sort of just make the entire brain a little bit more malleable. Potentially you could do this in a more spatially refined way.
1: I'm not sure. I'm not sure that um, it's, it matters. Um, I think that the way that the brain makes it refined um, is (laughs) by context, right? So I think if if there are a hundred synapses, And every memory requires activation of uh, five of them, right? The specificity isn't brain region selectivity. The specificity is recently active. And so Mm -hmm. I think the brain already kind of does that specification or psychedelics are taking advantage of a rule that's in the brain that enables that specificity. And again, this gets back to how I think they circumvent the melty brain problem.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, um, I've taken enough of your time. Dr. Gould Dolan, uh, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. Uh, Fascinating work. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you guys do uh, in the coming year or two.
1: Right. Thank you. It was my pleasure to speak with you again. And yeah, hopefully you'll have me back and I'll tell you about some cool octopus stuff next
0: time. Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy to use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today.